Daily Gazette Company presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Sports Editor, Ken Shot. Thank you, Scott Kesey, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. The NFL and college hockey are on the agenda for this uh, edition of the podcast. I'm going to talk with Burlington, Vermont uh, sports talk show host and 2008 Shenandoah High School graduate, Brady Farkas. We'll look at the end of the Bill Belichick era in New England and talk about the new Patriots head coach, Gerard Mayo. I'll preview the Union College men's and women's hockey uh, weekends. Uh, Union men uh, taking on... uh, Dartmouth and Harvard uh, this weekend on the road, while the women just have one game. They'll take on uh, Dartmouth on Friday. And then um, speaking of college hockey, I'll talk with ECAC Hockey Commissioner and former Union College player Doug Christensen. We're going to talk about a variety of topics, including the possibility of um, ECAC Hockey Tournament being on campus sites, especially for the championship round, something uh, the National Collegiate Hockey Conference is doing beginning in 2026. We'll get Doug's thoughts on that and plus some other uh, league uh, item. So uh, so stay tuned. We're going to come up with Brady Farkas first, talking New England Patriots football. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. If you really want to know what's going on in your community, you have to read the Daily Gazette. We don't take a side. We're right down the middle, and we're going to get to the truth. Our reporters and photographers are out in the field bringing you updates every minute with trust, accuracy, and integrity from the first page to the last page, independent, probing journalism. We're finding out what's going on in the community where nobody else is covering. It's who we are. It's what we do. Want to get all the latest news from the Daily Gazette on your phone or tablet? We have an app for that. The Daily Gazette app allows you to read all the newspaper stories and columns from our dedicated team of journalists. The app is free. You can download the app from the Apple or Google app stores. Hello, this is John DeAugustine, the publisher at the Daily Gazette. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette sports editor, Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast, and that's the end of an era for the New England Patriots as uh, Bill Belichick uh, stepped down as head coach uh, last week, and they have a new coach in uh, um, Gerard Mayo. And to talk about that is the host of the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV in Burlington, Vermont, uh, weekdays from 530 to 7. It's Brady Farkas. Brady, welcome back to the podcast, and uh, belated Happy New Year. I know we're past the halfway point of the uh, year, but uh, appreciate you coming on for a few minutes. Ah, Ken, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, we're not surprised by this, were we? That the Belichick was uh, stepping down, or yeah, you know, they didn't fire him, but and they just—I think—they let him down, let him go gracefully uh, this way. I think. Yeah, I don't think we're surprised. You look at kind of all the tea leaves, right? If you're reading all the tea leaves over the last couple of years, reports out that Robert Kraft unhappy that Tom Brady won a Super Bowl when leaving New England. That kind of starts some of this. Then the team gets progressively worse. Mac Jones's play regresses. Robert Kraft had come out and said that he wants to be back in the playoffs. They've been in the playoffs once now in the four years since Brady left. He really kind of ratcheted up the pressure in the offseason. And then, you know, there's the reports that, that Kraft and Belichick don't have a great relationship. And all of it kind of adds up together. And as the team gets worse, I'm not – you guys are always surprised when a legend is gone. But 
I've been calling for this to happen for months now. So I particularly am not that surprised, but it's still always going to be a little jarring. Why did what we, what does this mean with Belichick? I mean, obviously letting Brady go the way he did and, He's a defensive-minded coach. There's no doubt, about, no doubt about that. And just the way the offense was treated over the last couple of years, I mean, he didn't really have a – last season really didn't have an offensive coordinator. I mean, Matt, Matt Patricia was part of the offensive uh, coordinating team, which made no sense. Of course, uh, Matt Patricia ended up messing up my Eagles uh, defense toward the end of the season. <laughs> but that's another story for another time. But uh, um, what 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 went wrong with that Brady-Belichick uh, relationship at the end? And, I mean – were they on the outs uh, toward the end? Yeah, I mean, there was a really, really in-depth piece that came out last Friday from uh, Seth Wickersham and, and Bright Thompson and Donovan Nat over at ESPN that kind of really, I think, lays it out perfectly. And going back even like 10 years at this point, we're talking like 2013, Brady's like 35 years old at this point. Bill Belichick was ready to move on then. And not because he thought that Tom Brady stunk at that point, but because Bill Belichick in his mind, and probably correctly for where we were in football history at that point, had, had kind of had seen where quarterbacks went after 35 years old. So he was ready to move on from Brady famously, you know, as one year too early rather than one year too late. Well, Robert Kraft didn't want to do that. So what happens is, is Belichick wants to get rid of him. Brady knows this, and now he's offended. Now Kraft steps in and plays peacemaker with Brady, and Belichick ends up being a little bit resentful that Kraft is kind of horning in on his turf, like on his football decision-making turf. And this happens a few more times, right? As Brady gets older, he's signing progressively shorter and shorter deals. So he's going to become a free agent again quicker, or he's going to be up for another contract quicker. Once again, Belichick's ready to move on. Once again, Kraft doesn't want to. Once again, Kraft pays, plays peacemaker. And then finally, at the end, you know, Brady's resentful. Belichick's resentful of Kraft. And Kraft is stuck trying to kind of play middleman. So eventually, Kraft is complicit in letting Brady go, finally giving Belichick his way. Brady wins the Super Bowl. And now Kraft is resentful at Belichick because, hey, you've been telling me forever that this guy is going to go off a cliff. Well, I finally listen. And here he is winning the Super Bowl. So it's just this kind of circle, um, the story outlined of, of this circle of a little bit of resentment. Who's got the control? Who's calling the shots? Belichick had the, you know, had all the power we thought, but now Kraft is stepping in, doing more and more football things. And then the talk in the building begins. A lot of it from Kraft's son, Belichick doesn't know what he's doing anymore. Belichick's lost his fastball. And now the team is bad. And people in the building are starting to pick up on this talk and starting to agree with it. It just kind of creates this messy, this messy web. Um, I don't think that Bill Belichick can't coach anymore. I think he'll go somewhere else and has a very good chance at being successful. But here, th there was a new voice needed. There's a new dynamic needed for sure. Yeah. I mean, he did bring in an offensive coordinator in Bill O'Brien, but obviously the, the, it didn't work because the Patriots were worse. I seemed worse offensively this year. I mean, can't. What, what what happened with the offense this year? I mean, it just seems it went it went from bad to worse. I mean, I, I in the opening game of the season, the Eagles. I mean, uh, the, the Patriots looked okay in that game, but it just it, it never seemed to mesh uh, the rest of the way. Well, look, I think this is the way it goes for a lot of teams that end up bad in the NFL, right? the The Patriots did not have. 
top-end talent. But they had a collection of players that you could feel kind of good about, right? Like going into the season, if everything broke their way, you could win 9, 10 games and be in the position for the playoffs. But that's the thing. In the NFL, it rarely ever goes all of your way. And everybody who you were counting on ended up underachieving and or getting hurt. And then the backup, you know, the depth positions really weren't there. So the the Patriots never had a good enough roster talent-wise. They had a collection of guys you thought if they stay healthy, there's a chance. And they didn't, right? Devontae Parker was hurt for a while. Juju Smith-Schuster was hurt for a while. Hunter Henry missed games. Mike Kosicki missed games. The offensive line was totally a mess. And all of that leads to Mac Jones playing poorly because he doesn't have any talent, any help around him. And then I really do think Belichick really did a number on his confidence, has been doing a number on his confidence for the last year and a half. And then he becomes nervous. He's afraid to make a mistake. If I make a mistake, I'm going to get pulled. So now I'm going to be gun shy. And now we're leaving plays out on the field. Now we're taking sacks instead of taking chances. And it is just progressively worse and worse. So if everything had gone well, I could have foreseen a world where they won nine games, but that was all, you know, hope is not a strategy, Ken. And there was a lot of hoping with the Patriots this year. Yeah. Um, looking back at the, his career at New England, man, obviously the, the moment that really changed the franchise was when uh, Drew Bledsoe got hurt in that game against the Jets uh, back in the 2001 season. Uh, then Brady comes in and they end up upsetting the Ram, the St. Louis Rams in the uh, Super Bowl. I mean, did did you ever foresee that was going to be the the, the start of the a uh, uh, long dynasty, especially in this day and age with free agency and all that stuff? To see a dynasty that you know dominating performances that they had for twenty years, I mean, that's in this day and age of sports is unheard of. Yeah, I mean, no, you you could never you know, foresee that, and we're never going to see it again, at least in the NFL. I mean, I think back to it, right? Yankees win the World Series, ninety six. 98, 99, 2000, right? So they went four titles in five years. And then they didn't win again until 2009. But like the Yankees' true dynasty was one fourth as long as the Patriots' run of always being relevant. Like the great dynasties that we think of in modern day sports pale in comparison to what the Patriots did. And I think that alone puts it in perspective as to how impressive it was, how unlikely it was. And, and how we're not going to see it again, because in the salary cap era, in the free agency era, in the era where the, the draft is skewed to help the bottom teams, it just there's it's too many obstacles to overcome to have this run of sustained success. And frankly, to have coach, owner, quarterback be in lockstep for like they were together for 19 years or something like that to, to be in lockstep for, for 15 of them. That, that's a. That's a pretty good run. Yeah, and the Page is also the last team to repeat as Super Bowl champions too. So I mean, that, what, what, what is that? That tells you that it is tough to repeat yep. in this day in this day and age. What is uh, Belichick's legacy? Well, he's the greatest coach of all time, and he helped build the the greatest football dynasty of all time. And I, I, you can never take that away from him, despite how poorly this year went, how sideways last year went. Um, despite how surly he is with the media, you can't take any of that away from him. He's the greatest coach of all time. He's widely praised as the greatest coach of all time. He's the winningest coach of all time, at least from a championship perspective. And he very well may get there from a wins perspective um, in the not-too-distant future. So that's his legacy. That will always be his legacy. And I think he'll be welcomed back with open arms by Patriots fans 
very, very soon. Because I think Patriots fans are smart enough to recognize that, and they have to be appreciative of what was given to them. And look, the the this doesn't happen for every other fan base, right? This doesn't happen for all, hardly any fan base. So. The fan base gets that and recognizes it, and he'll be welcome back very, very soon. You mentioned the, his dealings with the media. I mean, it, it's I, I feel bad for the reporters who have to cover this to cover the team over the years that he uh, was. He just never gives you any really great answers, and it's all you know monotone. I mean, what is it like dealing with that? You know what? I don't have to be in the building often. I've sat in one Bell Belichick press conference in my life, and it was at the Super Bowl, and he was a lot more introspective that week. So the one time I was there, he was actually fine. Um, it's frustrating from my standpoint in that from a radio host perspective, there's hardly ever any conversation point, right? Yeah. And look, but that's what he wants, though, right? He wants everything on lock. He doesn't want things getting out. He doesn't want distractions. So from that point, he's been doing it perfectly, you know, in line with his vision. From my perspective, it's frustrating. Um, I guess I would say this, right? When they're winning, you just chalk it up and say, oh man, you know, Bill's tough to deal with, but hey, they're winning. You know, it is mm -hmm. what it is. And when they're losing, it becomes extremely frustrating because the shtick gets very, very old when you're not winning, right? You get away with things when you're winning. You don't get away with things when you're losing. It became incredibly frustrating over the last couple of years to hear him say things that you knew weren't necessarily true, to hear him say things that, you know, hear him talk about this guy or that guy, and you know that's not really how he's feeling. You know, we it's very apparent that he doesn't love Mac Jones, and it was apparent that he didn't believe in Mac Jones. He's not ever going to tell you that, even though you know he thinks that. Um, and, you know, just like I said, it, it wore itself, the shtick wore itself out as the team got worse. Yeah, but here's the thing. I mean, you take Belichick out of the, the, the Patriots' uh, room there, he's probably one of the best people to deal with. I mean, you, you watch, if you watched him on the uh, uh, college game day when they had the Army-Navy game in Foxborough, he, he was out, so out, outgoing. And you see him on other shows. I mean, I remember the NFL Network's uh, you know, top uh, 100 players uh, he, how eloquent he was, and that's uh, all that talk. He, he, get him away from football. He's great. I think if he, if it doesn't decide to go back to coaching, I think he could be a, a good studio analyst uh, for one of the networks. Oh, he'd be excellent, and I think a lot of people want that, and I've seen that suggested. I'm just he likes football, and he wants to coach football, and I think it's that simple. Um, could he be good in another career? Absolutely. But I don't think he wants that other career. I think he wants to coach football. I think he wants to get the record. I think he wants to stick it to Robert Kraft a little bit. Not so much out of animosity, but kind of like how Brady wanted to say, all right, you're going to get rid of me. I'm going to prove you wrong. I think Bill Belichick wants to do the same. Where does he go? Well, I mean, look, I would tell you, I think the Chargers would be a good job. I think Seattle would be a good job. The reports all indicate that he wants to stay on the East Coast. So Atlanta is a team in a winnable division that, you know, feels like they're a quarterback away, right? They have a lot of young players. They have some good young offensive pieces. The thing that Belichick doesn't really do well is draft or develop offense. They kind of already have it. When you talk about Drake London and Kyle Pitts, they do need to get the quarterback position right, right? We don't know what they're doing there. Perhaps they could trade for Dustin Fields. Perhaps they could sign Kirk Cousins or someone else who's available. But there's not as much offensively that Belichick has to get right there. It is on the East Coast. It's in a winnable division, very similar to what Brady did going to that bad division in the NFC South. And then there's the Washington front. 
He's from Maryland. He loves, you know, he grew up near there. It's a historic franchise. We know Bel- uh, Belichick's, you know, propensity for history and a historic division. Mm-hmm. I think Atlanta is the better job. I can certainly see the sentimentality of it all favoring him towards Washington and the chance to go back home. But all indications are that he wants to be on the East Coast. If your Eagles get rid of Sirianni, I think that would be a good, you know, that would be that, an appealing that, yeah, job. That would be intriguing. You know, that's certainly an appealing job. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff being made about Dallas. I, I don't see Belichick in Dallas. Um, if he doesn't like Robert Kraft meddling, I can't see him wanting to be around Jerry Jones. No, 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 no. Especially when he talks a lot. I mean, he's the only owner, I think, in, in the, the NFL who has his own post-game press conference. I mean, yeah. I don't who, – who cares what Jerry Jones has to say? I don't. Maybe the people in Texas do. Maybe the Cowboys fans do. But, I mean, I'm, I know Jeffrey Lurie, the Eagles owner, and you never you know get see him being interviewed after games. It's, it, no, I mean, I don't know. Robert Kraft's not interviewed after games. So it's, it's – I, I can't I, – I, I could see those two butting heads down in Dallas. But, uh, uh, like I said, the Eagle thing, as we tape here on Tuesday, I mean, it was not – I'm, I'm in the camp now where I – if Sirianni gets fired, I'm not going to cry over it. But that's just the way the Eagles handle things there toward the end. But, like I said, that's another topic for another time. But uh, let's talk about the uh, new head coach. They were the Patriots were quick about it in uh, hiring Gerard Mayo. What do we know about uh, Gerard Mayo? Well, look, he was a defensive rookie of the year um, for this team. He led them in tackles. I want to say it's five seasons here out of seven as a player. He stayed in New England his entire career, got out of football when he retired, was in finance, got back into football. He's been with the staff since, I think, 2019. Linebackers coach, said to be a great leader, good defensive mind, regardless of how bad the team was offensively. The defense has been very good the last two years, right? Last year was aided by a lot of turnovers. This year, it was aided by just generally sound play in the face of a bad offense. So he's certainly done very good things as a coach. Um, And I can think of a lot of reasons why this would work. I can also think of reasons that give me trepidation. And one of those reasons is that, is he too much like Bill, right? Is he Bill Jr.? And in a lot of ways, you would think that is good. This fan base is ready for someone that is different. This fan base sees young, innovative, creative. They see McVay. They see Shanahan. They see a true leader who's outwardly out there like Dan Campbell. And that's not to say that Gerard Mayo can't be any of those things. But this fan base has wanted somebody that is fresh, something that is new, something that is different, someone that can inspire. And again, not to say Mayo can't do those things, but I think this fan base is a little underwhelmed by or if it's going to go wrong, this fan base is going to come back and say, you should have gone with somebody kind of outside the family. That's what I would have done. I wouldn't have really wanted Vrabel either for the exact same reason for what it's worth. Um, The other big worry is that is he going to change the staff or is it just going to be the same staff with a new head coach? Because I think everybody in the fan base recognizes that this team was not good enough across the board. Bill Belichick was not the only problem with this team, right? They don't have good enough players and the staff overall isn't necessarily good enough. And so far it sounds like it's the same staff with Gerard Mayo as the head coach. And that doesn't feel different enough to get people excited, at least me. Well, I know, as I said, we're taping Tuesday. His introductory press conference was uh, on Wednesday. Um, 
were you surprised that the Patriots went, were so quick about it and not maybe waiting uh, a couple weeks maybe to talk to a coordinator whose uh, team's in the playoffs? Well, they had it written in the Gerard Mayo's contract that he was going to be the successor. I guess I, the first thing I want to know about is the legality of what if the Pats decided to break the contract, right? Like, mm-hmm. I would have liked to see them interview different people, right? I would have liked to see them interview Mayo. I would have liked to see them interview Vrabel. I would have liked to see them interview people from outside the family, the young hot shot offensive coordinator here or there or the other, a college coach. I wanted them to get some diversity of thought, some diversity of opinion, and just – you know, sample from a large swath of people. Um, again, if it's written into his contract, I don't know how, le- you know, legality-wise you go about doing that. On one hand, you give Robert Kraft props for sticking to his guns, knowing what he wants, and just being decisive and ignoring the noise and doing it. There's certainly something to be said for that. There's also something to be said for taking in a wide range of opinions, and they neglected to do that. Yeah. So we'll see how that uh, turns out with him. I want to uh, give you a chance to plug something else besides your uh, radio show. Uh, you have the uh, host of the Payoff Pitch on uh, Fastball on Sports Illustrated Fan Nation. How, how much fun is that? Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, we're doing a lot of writing right now in the offseason. Podcasts will kind of pick up again. Spring training starts in a month, so the podcast is on a bit of a hiatus. But, you know, three and a half weeks or so, we'll be up again going with that. But a lot of writing. So if you kind of Google fastball on fan nation there's a lot of stuff there every day about baseball what's going on and um the the winter has been fruitful for transactions news and rumors and uh with three and a half weeks until spring training i i'm sure we're going to see a lot more of it coming soon what are the red sox going to do this year uh, finish last <laughs> i mean they're good they're going to finish last in the division now the division is very very good um they may win 78 games and finish last i'm not saying that they're going to go 59 and you know, 113 out of this, but they are by far the worst team in that division. They appear to be unwilling to spend for big free agents. They appear to be unwilling to part with big prospects also. So here they are caught between a rock and a hard place. They're waiting for their young players to develop, of which they do have some, but they're waiting for their young players to develop while also trying to backfill the roster with stopgap guys and kind of like the Patriots, right? They are hoping. And in 2021, they hoped, and they made the American League Championship Series. Last year, they hoped, and they finished last. This year, they're hoping. It feels like they'll finish last. We'll have to see officially where it goes, but they, they are not the Red Sox of uh, of 15 years ago, let's say that. Yeah, well, at least the Boston fans have the Bruins and Celtics to, to uh, root for. They're playing both playing very well right now. Yes, they do. So we'll go, we'll go Bruins and Celtics into June, hopefully. And uh, then it'll be time for Pat's training camp again with some new energy. Well, maybe my Flyers will uh, show up against the Bruins in the conference final. Maybe my Sixers maybe show up, actually show up for a Game 7 against the Celtics, unlike last year, last year's Game 7. But we'll see Eastern what happens. Conference, <laughs> Eastern Conference is, uh, is good. It's better than it gets credit for. Yes, yes it does. So, Hey, Brady, we appreciate a few minutes. Tell everybody where they can find you on uh, social media. Yeah, at WDEV Radio Brady. Okay, that's on X and formerly Twitter. Still not getting, still not used to that <laughs> stuff. But uh, Brady, appreciate a few minutes and uh, good luck. We'll talk soon. All right, thanks, Ken. All right, that's Brady Farkas. And I should mention he's a 2008 Shenandoah uh, High School graduate. Uh, coming up, we'll preview the Union Men's and Women's College Hockey Weekend. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast.
skill, physicality. Home to college hockey's elite teams, coaches, and student athletes. ECAC Hockey, 12 programs competing at the highest level. A league where champions are born and world-class professionals are trained. Where history is abundant and a commitment to the cutting edge is unrivaled. The best facilities, the fiercest competition. ECAC Hockey, there's no experience like it. This is Union College Baseball Head Coach John Muller. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Sports Editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast, and it's our look at Union College men's and women's hockey. Uh, the men coming off in a nice weekend last weekend, getting five out of the possible six points, uh, beating Clarkson 5-1, to one, where the special teams played a major role in that one. Union scoring three power play goals, getting a shorthanded goal from Carter Corpy, and going 6-for-6 six six on the penalty kill. And then on uh, Saturday, 2-2 tie against St. Lawrence, and uh, the Garner Chargers won the shootout 2-0. And the uh, special teams also played a bit of a role there as they gave up uh, two uh, major power plays to St. Lawrence. Uh, St. Lawrence scored on the first one when John Prokop was uh, ejected for a cross check and then a hit from behind by Nathan Kelly in the second period. The uh, Garner Chargers killed that one off. Uh, and both games uh, over the weekend, Union had to kill a pair of uh, uh, 5-1-3 uh, disadvantages for two minutes. They did that successfully as well. So... Uh, you heard from uh, head coach Josh Halgie on Wednesday's podcast. Let's talk to the players. We'll have Carter Corpy, uh, Colin Ferguson, and Ben Tupker at the microphone. Carter, I'm going to start with you. Um, you have three shorthanded goals in the season, one away from tying a team record. What is it about you this year with the shorthanded goals? How come you've been so successful? Uh, honestly, I don't think it's me. I think our kill has done a great job this year overall, led by LC. Um, we implemented kind of a new structure of how we want to be and how we want to pressure teams and force them to do things that they don't necessarily want to do. And I think uh, what LC has preached to us throughout the year is the system creates the opportunity, and it really has. And I credit him for sure on all that. When do you know you have a chance to take off and maybe go down with, with a scoring chance? Just kind of hope. Sometimes you hope for a loose puck and uh, – Sometimes it works out that way, sometimes it doesn't. I don't necessarily say I try to cheat it by any means, um, but if when I do see that opportunity, I try to make the most of it. I mean, with the, with the record aside, do you worry about that at all? No, not at all. I mean, can you, looking back at that goal on Friday, I mean, it was a face up. One, you guys won the face off, Jeanette won the face off, and it was basically set up perfectly. If you had, have you had a chance to look at the tape of the movie, maybe? I mean, do you remember what and how? I mean, I looked it back. I mean, the guy kind of got a piece of it as I was going up and kind of made him second guess what he was doing a little bit and got him a little off balance. And I was able to get around, thank God. Um, and that just worked out for the best. Ben, what? This team was a shorthanded. The penalty kill has been excellent all year. I mean, I know you gave up two in that major on Saturday, but uh, this, be consistent as it has been and then be able to get shorthanded goals. I mean, how, how big is that? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, our kill as a whole has been great this year, and obviously our main objective is to, to not get scored on, but, um, you know, we've tried not to sit back too much and pressure when we can, and, um, you know, we've got lucky in the sense that that's worked out for us. Um, you know, so far this year with obviously, a, you know, a, a healthy amount of shorthanded goals, which we're really pleased about. I mean, 
is it important? Is, is it more the focus more on just trying to penalty kill, and then and the goals are just a benefit from that on the, on the penalty kill? Yeah, absolutely. We're not trying to cheat anything or stray away from our structure by any means. But um, you know, like Corpus touched on, um, for us the the system creates opportunity, and um, we're kind of just reaping the benefits of being connected uh, throughout the kill and getting a little bit of offense here and there when we can. Colin, first of all, I don't recognize you out the beard. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, uh, your thoughts about the penalty kill and, and the shorthanded goals that this team has been scoring? Yeah, I mean, uh, we play uh, put a lot of attention to detail in our penalty kill, and uh, we have a culture of toughness, which we embrace. And um, like they've said multiple times, the system creates the opportunity. I think at the end of the day, we just want to get the kill, um, make sure we don't get scored on. If we score, of course, that's a bonus, and we'll take it. But... Um, yeah, at the end of the day, we have a system in place, and we want to follow that as best we can. And it's it's been uh, it's been huge for uh, gaining momentum in games, and hopefully we can keep riding that out. You guys hit the road this weekend for Dartmouth and Harvard. Uh, tied right now, you're in a tie for the top four spot right now in the standings. Uh, so how important is it this weekend to go on the road? I mean, Dartmouth you know, lost over the weekend. Harvard's been struggling all year, so. How important is it to take advantage of this situation and get six points heading into a next week's Mayor's Cup game? Yeah, I think uh, it's going to be huge. I mean, you can never take a single game off uh, in the ECAC league play. The points are hard to come by. and um, Yeah, it's it's going to be a big weekend. Uh, we can really push uh, for another top spot here, maybe move up in the rankings a little bit. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see what our group's got. Carter, your thoughts on that? Uh, I'm excited for this weekend. I think that last weekend was a good, good kind of refresh after that Brown Yale weekend for us, and proof that we can get the job done. Um, we <clears throat> we definitely needed that to bounce back, and I th- hopefully that leads us in the right direction. Ben, I mean, Darwin's been a pesky team this season. Yeah, they they yeah, beat you guys up there one nothing last year late in the season. Uh, so how important is it to you know? Get the jump on them, not let them dictate the play of the game. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, throughout the course of the year, like our first five to ten minutes, it's been a point of emphasis. So uh, it doesn't really matter who we're playing. I mean, that's going to be our goal going into Friday night too, is to to get a good start, especially on the road. Colin, your thoughts on that one? Yeah, I think uh, the loss last year will sit a little bit. I think that was a sour one. And um, moving forward, we really want to get on them early. I don't know what it's like this year. But in the past, there's been not a lot of life in that building, so I think we just need to be uh, self-starters and really take it to them right away, like you said. And I think that's how we'll get the job done. As for the Union women's hockey team, uh, the Garner Chargers are coming off a pair of shutout losses at uh, St. Lawrence and Clarkson last weekend. Uh, tough trip for that one, uh, but uh, Union really didn't lose any ground in the uh, ECAC hockey standings. Still remain a half point behind Brown for that eighth and final slot for the uh, first round game in the ECAC hockey tournament. Uh, Union only has one game uh, this week. Um, they'll take on Dartmouth at 6 p.m. Friday. The two teams played to a 1-1 tie back in October. Now, the reason for the uh, one game this weekend, uh, Harvard, the travel partner of Dartmouth, is in the middle of its Beanpot tournament. Uh, Harvard lost Tuesday to Northeastern 1-0, and the Crimson will play Boston College on Tuesday in the third-place game. The Union-Harvard game at Mess will take place on Wednesday, uh, January 31st. So uh, Union looking at, uh, like I said, they're going ahead to play on Dartmouth. It's also pink at the rink, uh, cancer awareness game, so they're looking forward to raising awareness and raising funds to help uh, beat cancer. 
So on Tuesday, I had a chance to talk with uh, head coach Josh Skiba and players uh, Meredith Killian and Riley Walsh. All right, guys, there's just one game this week. Um, how do you prepare for just a one game uh, against Dartmouth? Um, well, it's a lot easier from a coaching perspective to prepare for, for one opponent. So um, obviously just focus on that, that opponent for us. So uh, it's a pink and red game for us. So I think everybody's pretty excited for, for what we're going to do and the cause. And um, I think obviously league points on the table for us in a game that we know that we want to take advantage of. Yeah, I think it's exciting that you just get to focus on one game. And like Skeep said, that it's a pink the rank um, important game for us and for the fans and the hockey community as a whole. So it's exciting to play for something special like that. And I think everybody's really dialed. They're always excited to play Dartmouth. So it'll be a good game. Yeah, tough weekend this past weekend for you guys. Uh, what, do you, what happened? What do you have to do to bounce back? I think our play, you know, we showed up both games and I think that uh, I think the one thing we just need to focus on is like execution but I think that you know we created a lot of chances against both teams and we produced and we showed them and proved to them who we are and what we can do um, I think just continuing to like work on executing and like, work the, throughout this week to just continue to get better and like prove those teams wrong it's just important and again we have just one game this weekend so it's easier for us to just focus on you know one opponent and you know like go into that game and give everything we got because we have Nothing else. So. Josh, what do you mean? What I mean, obviously, two tough opponents last weekend against at St. Lawrence and Clarkson. What did you learn from those games, and how do you apply that to the game against Dartmouth on uh, Friday? Um, well, we talked a lot about just striving for identity this past weekend, and I think uh, you know, from from we coming back from Christmas break, I think it's all been about identity for us. We want to make sure that we're playing the right way going into playoffs, and I think this weekend just taught us that. You know, if we continue to stick to our identity, we're going to yield chances. Um, you know, we got better from Friday to Saturday. I, I like the way we played against Clarkson. We created some opportunities. Um, you know, like Riley said, we've got to find ways to, to execute a little bit better. We've got to find ways to make better decisions at times. Um, you know, I think there's no secret our special teams need to be better, but I think we have a lot of belief in our special teams. We have the right people on there, and I think uh, we're going to stay the course with it and continue to build confidence in those groups. Yeah, Dartmouth, the team, I think you tied up there in Hanover. Um, what what did you, what was uh, what do you remember about that game and what do you have to do to to you know, get the victory this time? Well, I think we I think we worked extremely hard. I thought I thought we outworked them for for majority of the game. Um, you know, we created a lot of really cool chances and, and you know created a lot of offense. I think our team uh, there was a sense of belief in our locker room that we could win that game and you could feel our team pushing. Uh, to create chances and, and to try to score the entire game. And I think, you know, for us, we want to try and find ways to create more offense. We know they've got a couple offensive players on their team that we got to shut down. Uh, but I think, again, if we play to our identity, uh, we'll yield chances. And I, I'm confident that we're in a better position now. We're more prepared uh, in how to finish and, and how to find ways to, to you know, create, execute, or execute in those opportunities. You're half point out of that last home ice spot for the first round of the uh, ECAC hockey tournament. So, how important is it to you know get that three points and you know, you know keep yourself in in position to uh, get home ice for the uh, first round? I think it's huge, and obviously everybody's really excited. This is our first year that we get to be in the playoffs, so I think that's also a huge push for us. We don't want to just be in the playoffs; we want to make something happen and make an impact in them. So. I think everybody's just dialed into the next few games to try and get some league points and get up those few points in the leaderboard. Riley? I also think just like focusing on those 
league points important, like home ice advantage. Again, McKinnon has been in the playoffs, so like one, earning our position and proving that we belong in playoffs. And again, like having that home ice advantage is going to be huge for Union, and it's going to be so exciting for us to play in front of our school and like at our facilities. And I think there's going to be like a lot of you know adrenaline, and like we're just going to be so excited. And We'll be staying on ECAC Hockey as we talk with uh, Commissioner Doug Christensen, the former Union College uh, hockey player who's in his first year running the conference. So stay tuned for that interview. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. I'm Daily Gazette news columnist Andrew Waite and host of the Weighing In podcast, which takes you inside my award-winning featured news column by offering the backstory, thought process, and interviews that inform my work. Plus, readers have their chance to respond. The Weighing In podcast is available at dailygazette.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Tri-City Valley Cat President Rick Murphy. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Sports Editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, recently, the National Collegiate Hockey Conference announced that it was going to, starting in 2026, uh, have its, all of its uh, conference tournament games played on campus sites. And that includes the uh, conference semifinals and championship game, which have been played uh, for years at the XL Energy Center in St. Paul, Minnesota. And that got me to thinking, uh, is that something ECAC Hockey will consider? Uh, ECAC Hockey did uh, in 2021 have on-campus sites. That was just four teams playing then because we're in that COVID-19 season. Uh, Clarkson, St. Lawrence, Colgate, and uh, Quinnipiac, the uh, Union RPI, and the six Ivies all uh, didn't play that year. They held out because of the COVID situation. And as it turned out, Clarkson ended up having to forfeit their semifinal matchup against St. Lawrence because they had some COVID protocols. So St. Lawrence ended up hosting Colgate, and Quinnipiac got a first got by into the championship, and Quinnipiac hosted the championship game with St. Lawrence, uh, went down to Hamden and, and won the tournament. Uh, so I had a chance uh, on Monday to uh, chat with uh, Doug Christensen, the commissioner of ECAC Hockey in his first year. He was actually at the uh, Union and RPI games on Saturday. Had a Brief chance to chat with him there, but uh, more of extensions uh, chat on Monday. Uh, we talked about uh, what if there's a possibility that the ECAC hockey tournament could end up at campus sites or was it stay in Lake Placid for the championship round? And we have to add some other uh, ECAC hockey topics. So here's my interview with Doug Christensen. Well, Doug, let me ask you, um, the, the National Collegiate Hockey Conference recently announced that um, beginning in the 2026 tournament that they're going to um, – go all on-campus sites for the tournament, including the semifinals and championship game. I mean, down the road, I mean, I'm not sure how long uh, the contract is in Lake Placid, but what, what do you think of the possibility of the ECAC hockey doing that one day? Well, I think every conference has their own pluses and minuses to it. Uh, you look at the NCH, they obviously have some really large buildings, but they have some of the geography issues that come along with that. Um, we have a little bit different in terms of some of the, the capacities in our arenas are a bit smaller, um, but we don't have the geography concerns. Um, so I think it's something that we'll continue to look at, but uh, I think that Lee Class has been a fantastic host. Uh, it's a, it is a city that symbolizes hockey in our country, 
and it has a ton of history in our league. And so for us, um, we'll obviously continue to look at all of our options, but I think that Lake Placid is a really good home, and uh, we're looking forward to continuing to grow it. And I'm looking forward to adding some of my own uh, and our own uh, thoughts and processes as to how we can make it better. Yeah. I mean, how important is Lake Placid? I mean, obviously, you know, what happened there in 1980 with the USA hockey team uh, winning the gold medal, beating the Russians in the um, the game before the gold medal game, um, having that yeah, you know, that your the championship round there. I mean, how important is that to the league and yeah, and having it there? I think that it ties to together just a community, and it's a hockey community. You know, there's that element of Lake Placid where it's got that mountain town feel. You know, and you, you think of a lot of places that are in Colorado, and uh, whether it's a Vale or a Telluride or whatever it is that has the nice shops and restaurants and things like that. But with the separator from those towns in Lake Placid is 1980 and 1932 for as well, mm. but obviously more symbolically 1980. And I think that that has really made it a hockey town. And when you walk down the street, there's a USA hockey store. So the benefit for a family to come to Lake Placid is there's a little bit of something for everybody. There's something who just wants the hockey purist who just wants to watch three games there's something who was a little bit of a foodie and they want to go try a couple of nice restaurants. If somebody wants to shop, whatever it might be, the Lake Placid has that. And I think that that's something that makes it not just a hockey weekend, but a weekend for the whole family that, you know, we can be a big part of what they do. And hopefully whether their school wins or loses on Friday night, they find that it's a really rewarding weekend uh, in general because of all the offerings of Lake Placid. Have the coach, uh, the uh, coaches uh, said much about this since the NCHC announcement came out? I think that the coaches have talked about lots of different options for championships. I think that um, we've had some conversations about it um, with the coaches as recently as as, as recently as December. Um, but I think right now our focus is trying to make sure that the championship this year goes really well. Um, I'm looking forward to it um, because there's some things that I just want to modify um, that hopefully make it uh, a really good student-athlete experience. And I also think at the same token, it's an opportunity through us for us this year to really evaluate it um, through a new, new set of eyes and, and then be able to um, go back to the coaches and say, what did you like, what didn't you like uh, when we all get together in the end of the season meetings in Naples? What do you want to modify? Well, I think that there's some um, tangible things that um, in terms of some branding pieces I think that you'll see some of those things coming out in February, and maybe you'll give me a call when you see it. Um, and there's some things that I want to be able to um, provide the student-athletes just in terms of just having it look a little bit different, have feel a little bit different um, that I think will be really good. And then, obviously, um, we're looking at uh, modifying um, really the, the overall broadcast and production to um, – raise the entire profile and so we're trying to look at what options we have um, and that's something that's an ongoing process but we've had some really productive conversations and i think that that's a tangible area that you'll see uh, some changes any chance of a studio show maybe or some on-site uh pre-game post-game type thing one of the issues that weekend has for us obviously our partners espn espn has the rights for the women's college basketball tournament um, and that is the opening weekend of that tournament goes head to head with Lake Placid. So to answer your question, no, 
but I think that you're going to see in terms of uh, being on linear TV. Um, but I think that you're going to see some uh, modifications and some things that we're going to try to uh, work on to improve. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, this is the second year of the uh, one game first round format. Are discussions still going on as to, you know, maybe going to a format which is sort of consistent, either, you know, do the best of three in the first two rounds and then, you know, the single elimination in a championship round or just, you know, is there talk about maybe just going one round and all, all the rounds? Not going to one and all the rounds. I think that the coaches obviously would like to go back to three in the opening round. Um, but right now that obviously there was a piece of the financial element that we wanted to make sure we got right. Um, and until we, you know, full find ways to generate new revenue, um, it's something that we're going to continue with the main, the structure that we have now. What about as far as realignment's concerned? I mean, you know, I think Arizona State's going to be joining the NCHC in a, in a couple of years. Um, I mean, there's talk maybe uh, the Ivies might decide to, to leave. I mean, is there, what's, what's the latest on maybe possible realignment in the ECAC hockey? I don't think it's something that's uh, in the near term at all. Obviously, you're always looking at different options. I mean, you can't be living in college sports today and not think that these things are possible, right? But I think that we as a league are really strong uh, for both men and women. And there is that beauty to our conference schedule that it's it's like a golf course. Everybody plays the same uh, holes and has the same opportunity for success. And I think it's also proven over time that all of the schools can find a format that allows them to be successful. Um, you obviously look on the men's side where you see Union College has won a national championship. Yale has won a national championship for the last 10 years. Quinnipiac has been able to win a national championship. And then you look at all of the other schools that have had success along the way too. So it's really worked out very well for our institutions as a collective whole. And I think that they believe that. And I think that that's what gives it a lot of strength. And then obviously on the women's side, we've got seven of the top 15 teams in the country. It's absolutely proving to be an outstanding opportunity for uh, us as a league, both within the league and then also on a national level. So I think the league is doing a really good job of providing what each of the schools need. So um, we're thrilled with that. We need to continue to build upon that and we need to grow that. Um, but of course, you're always looking at ways to improve the league uh, as best you can, whether that's through the championships, whether that's through sponsorship, whether that's um, whatever that might be. Um, we're going to continue to look at everything. Looking at the standings as we talk here on uh, Monday, I know, you know not everybody's played the equal amount of games yet, but you look, Brown's in second place right now with 17 points. Yale's in uh, tied for and Union are tied for fourth with 15 points. Princeton, you know, a point back at 14. You know, some of these teams that never have really experienced success the last couple of years. I mean, how? I mean, obviously Quinnipiac is going to run away with with winning the uh, regular season, but I mean, below that, just seeing teams like Brown, like Yale, like Union, you know, battling for maybe a, a first round bye. What does that say about the league this year? I think it's great. I mean, obviously from a Quinnipiac point of view. Um, you know, they're having tremendous success in the league, but they're also having success on the national stage. And, you know, Colin Graf uh, is, is a player who's had a fantastic uh, season. Um, and, and obviously they've got a lot of players who've been able to contribute for them. So they're doing a nice job. And it's, But in terms of the rest of the league, you, 
it's great to see, but that's what the ECAC is about. It's just what we talked about. It's got that parity. You know, Dartmouth uh, has found themselves, you know, in that top four spot too. And one weekend can change things. Um, and that's the beauty is, is that um, whether you're right now uh, near the bottom end of the standings or the top end of the standings, one, ch- one weekend uh, can change the dynamic of your entire season. And that's, and that's fun. That's fun for the coaches. It's fun for the players. Uh, to know that they're all playing meaningful hockey and could have an, a first-round bye um, and maybe at a program that hasn't had that. And then at the same token, the programs that may have had that, um, you know, have opportunities to claw their way back to where they were uh, with a couple good weeks. So that that part's fun, and, you know, it's going to be great for us to be able to sit back and see that competition unfold. How is life on the job so far in your first year? It's great. It's busy. Um, you know, for me, it's – um, after this weekend, I'll have been to all 12 campuses and seen all 24 teams play, um, you know, 12 men, 12 women. I was uh, supposed to get to Colgate earlier in the year, but it didn't happen because of um, some things that came up. But uh, I'm excited to um, what I would describe as land the plane because, you know, we've got our championships coming up. Those are the most important things that we do. And, and then really be able to assess what did we do well, what are the areas that we want to attack next year when we head to Naples? But I think that we've done a nice job of, um, you know, continuing to, to build on the foundation of Steve Hagwell in terms of the infrastructure of the league, the vision of the league. And then at the same token, add some of the branding elements that I'm sure you've seen on social media and how we've tried to approach the league, um, you know, in terms of really trying to push the dynamic of who are we as a league? What are we trying to accomplish uh, on each of our campuses? And then, um, at the same time, I want to make sure that we um, amplify what each individual school is doing on campus. And I think that we've been able to do that, and uh, we're going to continue to do that for the rest of the season and beyond. What about my uh, social media campaign of uh, miking the refs? Is that going well? Is that going to happen it's someday? Gonna happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I really appreciate the fact that you're not the only one who asks. Other people ask. So you've at least influenced a couple other people to ask me the question as well. Um, but I don't see that as something that happens. But I, I will say that now that I've been in all the buildings and I've seen reviews and I've seen all these different things, I think that there's an opportunity for us to um, communicate a little bit more efficiently um, with the people who are in the building. So that's something that we'll talk about in Naples um, and, and, and look to um, whether it's approve or modify based upon those discussions. Cause I do think that um, there, there is an area where um, the people who are in the building um, want to know more and hopefully we can give a little bit more insight, um, and but do it in a consistent manner that does not have a microphone on there. Yeah, I mean, I like to, to have this to have them, the officials just you know let the public addressing also know what they're looking at, and then that way they communi- he communicates or he she whoever the public addressing announcer is communicates that to the uh, to the fans to the media so we have at least have an idea. And yeah, the other problem is some of these rinks the the, the video uh, where they have the refs have to uh, look at is nowhere near the penalty box. I think you know Cornell they got to go off the ice, Yale they got to go off the ice. Um, yeah. I mean that's I mean that, that that doesn't help the situation either where they the, the officials don't you know go to the scores table and let them know what they're looking at. I think all the things that you brought up are things that I've seen, um, and I think it's just finding the right um, plan forward, and so that's what we'll look to do. And I think that that's, but I think that that's something that I have seen and witnessed myself. I think it's an area we can improve. It's just a matter of finding out exactly what we want to do. But to your point, if you're at a game at Cornell and you see the officials leave and you don't even know exactly what's happening, 
um, yeah, I think we can do a, a good job of explaining to the people who are there and paying attention um, a little bit better than we are now. I'll be back to wrap up the podcast and have the latest winners in the Daily Gazette's You Pick a Football contest in just a moment. I know who's not a winner, the Philadelphia Eagles. They're done. Thank goodness. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. in college hockey. It's a battle night in and night out. ECAC hockey, an iconic conference home to 12 of the most prestigious universities and programs in the world, and showcasing the best student athletes in the sport. Top-notch facilities and arenas, incomparable traditions, passionate fans, alumni who go on to become elite professionals, leaders, and champions. ECAC hockey, there's no experience like it. Hi, this is Mark Kestisher, the voice of the NBA on ESPN Radio and college football on ESPN Radio. I grew up in Gilderland. I'm a proud member of the 518, and I go back over 30 years with Ken Schott. And when I'm not listening to his Schottsky Radio, I'm listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette sports editor Ken Schott. Here's Ken. Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 19 winner in the Daily Gazette's You Pick a Football contest was Mark Denton of Fultonville with a 6-0 record. Mark wins a $100 Hannaford gift card. Congratulations, Mark. The VIP winners were Dwayne Leach of All Seasons Equipment and me. We each went 5-1. The only games we both missed were that uh, Dallas loss to Green Bay. I don't think anybody had... Uh, Dallas losing to Green Bay in that one, but uh, thankfully the Cowboys are out. Of course, I can't talk with my Eagles are out because they play like crap again, and it's going to be a long offseason. Well, I'm 178 and 100 on the season in the U Pick'em Football Contest. I'm one game out of first place. Not bad after I got off to a slow start. Uh, my Gazette colleague Adam Schinder was 3-3. Three and three. He is 170 and 108. I'll announce the U Pick'em Football Contest winner's name, and that winner's name will appear in Thursday's Daily Gazette. To play, go to dailygazette.com and click on the U Pick'em Football banner. I'll post my picks on X and Threads later this week. Just because COVID-19 mandates are easing, that does not mean you should relax. Be vigilant. If you have not gotten vaccinated or received a booster shot, please do so. Do it for yourself, do it for your family, and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots Podcast. I want to thank Brady Farkas, Doug Christensen, and members of the Union Men's and Women's Hockey Team for being on the show. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on X and threads at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots Podcast are not necessarily those of the Daily Gazette Company. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of the Daily Gazette Company. I'm Daily Gazette sports editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports.